Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Dave Champion is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out his first appearance in episode 121 and his second appearance in episode 358 of Balance Body Radio. Both of those episodes are some of my absolute favorite ever, so be sure to go check those out, 121 and 358. Dave Champion is a former Army Ranger with a law enforcement background. In the private sector, Dave is a businessman turned journalist, having hosted his own radio and television shows from the year 2000 through 2018. In addition to being a physiologist with a doctoral degree in political philosophy, Champion has an extensive background in legal studies. Dave has written the groundbreaking and widely acclaimed Income Tax, Shattering the Myths. His second book, Body Science, The New 21st Century Understanding of How Your Physiology Really Works, Leave the Myths and Lies Behind, Get Healthier Than You or Your Doctor Ever Imagined, and Avoid Chronic Disease, is the result of his research into core principles of human physiology leading to a visionary understanding of how every person on the planet can get healthy, stay healthy, and reduce their odds of getting a diagnosis of chronic disease to virtually zero. It's one of my absolute favorite books on the subject, and we are thrilled to bring Dave back on to chat about it. Dave Champion, welcome back to Boundless Body Radio. Thanks, buddy. It's wonderful that you have me back again. I love it. Yeah, I'm so glad you're back. Um, I've always had a great time chatting with you. Like I said in the introduction, 121 was an awesome episode all about cholesterol. We really made that the focus. The, the second episode we did, which is 358, was awesome. We, told, we took a look at ketosis and the term that you coined, glucosis, which I absolutely love. We just went on a trip to Mexico, and I was looking at my bookcase. I don't normally get a ton of time to read uh, a whole lot, but there we had nothing to do but sit on the beach. And I was looking through all my books and trying to decide what I was going to take. And I chose Body Science again, which I've read for now the third time, read it cover to cover on the beach. It's awesome. I love it. It's a great book. But for a third time, I love that. Thank you. I, every time I read it, I get something new out of it. So I really, really appreciate that. So we're going to deep dive into some other parts of your book today that we maybe kind of brushed over in the other discussions. And like I said, I definitely recommend that people go back and check that out. Before we do, this tends to be our kind of annual uh, welfare check. We're just making sure that you're doing okay. Your heart hasn't exploded. Your scurvy hasn't gotten so much worse <laughs> after all these years of doing carnivore. How are you doing? I am doing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Um, you know, I, I turned 64 a couple months back and, um, with the exception of the fact that being an idiot during my early years in the gym, I completely trashed my shoulders. Um, other than that, I am more fit, um, and correctly fit. And as a trainer, you know what I mean by that? Um, you know, guys that go to the gym are not necessarily correctly fit. Uh, I am more correctly fit today than I've been at any point in my life. Yeah, that's amazing. How much of that do you attribute to your diet? 90%. 90%. Yeah, I've always been in the gym. I, I got home from the military in uh, what, late October of 1984. And literally days later, I, I joined, I don't think it exists anymore, Holiday Health Spa. And um, so I've been going to the gym since late 1984, and, and I'm a five to seven day a week guy and have been for, what is that, 36 years, something like that, 39 yeah. years. Um, so I've always been a gym guy. Uh, but as I mentioned a moment ago, that didn't always make me a properly fit guy. Um, but and I don't know if we talked about this in either of the, the previous two chats we've had. Uh, 
prior to my deciding to explore the concept of ketosis, um, I was insulin resistant mm -hmm. and I didn't know it. Um, interestingly, I, I went to three separate doctors because I, I had these symptoms, right? And I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, but I knew something was wrong, right? So I went to three separate doctors and I gave them five symptoms, which are ironically the five primary symptoms of insulin resistance, which as you know, is an epidemic in this country, right? Yes. And not one of them said, oh, you're insulin resistant. All three of them said, well, we really don't know what's wrong with you. Now, if you'd asked me a year, two years, three years, four years after that, I would have said it just speaks to the fact that although many people to some extent worship MDs, uh, they're actually in reality when, when let's say, here's their knowledge of human physiology, right? And as, as people's, their own knowledge of human physiology increases, suddenly they realize that doctors are um, far less bright than the public generally gives them credit for. How's that for tactful? Um, but if you were to ask me today, why do I think they said, we don't know what's wrong with you? Um, I would give you a more cynical answer today than I would have given you several years ago. And the cynical answer today is if they say, we don't know, they know what the next step is after insulin resistance, mm. type two. Okay. And with type two comes a whole slew of other chronic diseases. Type two is the foundation. Well, actually insulin resistance is the foundation, but as far as a real diagnosable chronic disease, type two is the foundation for all these other horrible chronic diseases from which the medical industry makes literally trillions of dollars a year. So my, my 2024 more cynical self says, I find it hard to believe that not one of the three recognized the five primary signs of insulin resistance when they said, oh, we don't know what's wrong with you. My more cynical self says they knew, but to solve the problem then would have deprived them of all the income that was to come. Like I said, my new more cynical self. <laughs> it's such a good point. And I definitely want to talk about this today. The implications of, of the information in your book and some of your later chapters where you go into all of these different industries and all the trillions of dollars and the square footage even of grocery stores. Like all of these things would change if people got the information that you write about. And we can sit here and pretty much say that even though here we are banging this drum as loudly as we can and trying to get this message out far and wide. We This information is not going to get out to everybody, unfortunately. It's going to get a, a, maybe a very, very, very small minority of people, and it's going to remain suppressed because of that reason, because it makes so much money. I love the point that Nina Teichel's made when we interviewed her um, a few years ago when she said, like, what is, what is the nicest, newest building anywhere around you and it's always an, an addition to a hospital it's an add-on it's an oncology center it's <laughs> always in the medical industry that's where all the money is and it's it's right in front of our faces absolutely absolutely it's it's and i think there's a large percentage of the american population that thinks that's great um that, that we're taking care of our population um 
what they don't realize is, that, and I'm not damning any of these medical corporations for meeting a need. Okay, um, if I would, if I was the CEO of medical corporation, I'd be meeting a need. Uh, the problem is the disinformation, and and that's really coming out uh, from the highest levels of the United States government, CDC, uh, NIH. It's coming from big pharma. Who they're the amount of money that they pump into media advertising. They control what the media is willing to say, because if they say the wrong thing, then companies such as Pfizer and others will yank their advertising money. Same thing with the processed food industry, which these days is the vast majority of all food. I mean, you walk through the grocery store aisles just as an exercise, <clears throat> and you, you determine what's processed and what's whole or natural. Okay. And I, you know, I, I don't know what the actual stats would be, but just thinking through as I walk through the grocery store, it's like 97% processed food and 3% whole or natural food. Easy. Uh, and so those companies, Big Pharma, Big Med, and Big Food hold tremendous sway over what the media says. And there is a narrative. And here's the part that challenges me that I don't understand. I get that money talks. Okay? What's that old adage? Money talks, bullshit walks. I get that. Uh, but the part I, I, I struggle with, because this is a free country, right? In theory, and, and we have free speech, unless you're on like Facebook or YouTube. Um, so the part I, I struggle with is that the disinformation, okay, it's not, not disinformation. I want to call it malinformation because it's done with malice and intent, okay? Mm. It, it, it's, it's not, well, I suppose it is disinformation, but even disinformation isn't necess doesn't necessarily carry malice with it, okay? I, I think what we're talking about here is, is malinformation. There is malice intended. It, it is intended, if you, if you were to take the information that, say, Big Pharma, we'll just use them as an example, take the information that they put out on health, okay, I'm going to guess somewhere in the range of 98% of that will make you sick. If you follow that advice, you'll be sick and you'll need their meds. Um, and of course, that being sick generally leads to a person dying years or even decades earlier than otherwise would be the case. And that's taking them away from their spouses, taking them away from their kids. If they're a business owner, it's jeopardizing the, 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 uh, the livelihoods of all the people who are employed by them. And on and on we go. Just <clears throat> all of this, these horrible implications that are consequences that befall or flow from malinformation. They know it's a lie. They know they're making people sick to get money. And we don't seem to have, and this goes to your point, we don't seem to have a way for the message to break out. That's the part that's frustrating to me in a free country, that there appears to be no way for the message to actually break out and run. Yeah, so. absolutely. It, it's a great point. And it's it's clear, even in like the latest Netflix documentary that just dropped, it's all about the twin study and they promote a vegan diet. And you see all these headlines. And I, I'm having the, the worst, most unenviable position of having to watch it because my phone is blowing up. People are asking me about it. They're asking me about vegan diets and how they're so healthy and 
why I'm promoting like an all meat diet like you are. <laughs> and so I have to watch this stuff and it's four episodes of 45 minutes each. And it's so convincing and you don't, you don't see behind the headlines where, you know, Christopher Gardner, whatever his name is, is getting funded by beyond meats. So of course they're putting people on fake processed meats that are terrible for the environment and terrible for our health and promoting that as this shiny new amazing thing that everybody's going to watch and think like, yeah, this is great. Did, did you ever watch the documentary? Um, what is it? Uh, Forks over knives. Yes. Ugh. Okay. So <clears throat> I was more naive back then. So, you know, I had to do my follow-up research, but when I watched that, I was like, huh, wow. Okay. Um, but when I say more naive, the the idea because that's not like big pharma, right? That that's not trillion dollar industries lying to you. It's just some guy making a documentary, right? Um, so I had to go back and do my research, and you you may remember from that they talked about <clears throat> what happened um, with World War II when the Nazis came in and took all the meat and in Europe. And then suddenly cardiovascular disease and various other chronic diseases suddenly plunged, right? And that <clears throat> they only came back, they only made a resurgence in Western Europe uh, after the end of World War II when um, various farming operations that, that involved uh, animals that are slaughtered for, for food, when those operations came back and began to grow back to their previous status, that's when heart disease came back to Europe. And what it really was, I mean, it, it, this was a lie by omission. What it really was is the Nazis seized all the grain and sugar along with the meat. But the producer and director of Knives Over Four, Forks Over, Forks Over Knives, um, they lied by omission. They didn't talk about the fact that Nazis seized all the grain. They didn't talk about the fact that Nazis seized all the sugar. They didn't talk about heart disease. The real reason heart disease um, came back when the economy came back is because sugar and grain came back. Now, <clears throat> you and I know this, but for the sake of the audience, there are, I don't know how many people there are out there who eat carnivore style. I, I'm going to guess at this time because it's, it's, it's a thing right now. Okay? I don't know if it'll continue and grow, but it's a thing right now. So there's, what, 334 million Americans here. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe a million are carnivore right now, right? Sure. So if you look at the carnivore, and you know, some of those people have been carnivore for decades, and the rest, the, the people who have taken on carnivore more recently, they're just getting on board belatedly, Okay. Right. And and when you talk to people who have been carnivore for years, I would be an example of that. When you talk to people who have been carnivore carnivore for years, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't find any heart disease, you don't find any hypertension, you don't find any type two diabetes, you don't find any just on heart, you just on and on and on. Um, they're absolutely incredibly healthy. So now, if we go back to forks over knives, clearly it was not eating meat. And the only other food source that people consumed a fair amount of in Europe post-World War II were grains and sugar. So yep. if, we, if we know from our carnivore experience, if we could take meat out of the picture, what's left? The grains yeah. and the sugars. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and well, I, have, I have a lot of animosity towards... Um, uh, people like the producer and director of not forks over knives and uh, what, what was that one where they were 
focusing on um, uh, high performing athletes. Game changers. Ugh. Game changer. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're the. I, I know that they're pushing more of a personal agenda, um, but they're really no different than big pharma, big med, and big food because they're lying intentionally, willfully, knowingly, and intentionally lying to people to get people to follow what they do or what they want. Okay, um, there is no way to review the evidence on the nutritional distinctions between um, vegetarian or vegan. And the person doesn't have to be carnivore. Let's just say that they have a diet that's low carb and high on, on meats. Okay, uh, The nutritional data looked at objectively is so crystal clear that either they are complete idiots which I don't believe, or they're knowingly, willfully, and intentionally lying to people simply to influence people to do what they think is the right thing. <clears throat> and you've, you've probably talked to people who were vegan. Yeah, absolutely. I, Tons. I just, just reading a comment somebody sent to me this morning um, that, that they had been vegan for years and they eventually went, <laughs> they attempted to go, the story is, he attempted to go vegetarian keto. Okay. And he said, you know, during his time in vegan, his health was going down, 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 down. So when he shifted into vegetarian-based keto, his, his, it continued on, the, on that tra trajectory. And then when he went carnivore, whoop, turned around. He says at 47 years old, he's the healthiest he's ever been in his entire life and all he eats is meat. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's a universal story. So how, so how can these other guys not know this? They do know. They they know. And this is, I, I love that you make such a strong point of that in the book. It's like, you know, you're way smarter than I am. I, Me and my feeble brain could sit down and have a think and say like, okay, if I were to design a study, I, I guess you could get a group of carnivores and a group of vegans or vegetarians and can compare them on several different things. Just make sure that the people on carnivore are eating an animal-based diet. That would be fairly easy to do. And why hasn't anybody accidentally kind of done that study is for exactly <laughs> the point you make. It's like, they know, they know what the outcome would be. They yes. will not touch it. They don't fund it. The studies that we see that are being done on things like LDL cholesterol that Dave Feldman is doing, those are funded by us in the community. Like he has to go out and <laughs> yeah. get citizens to fund his research because this will not be covered by the people who do the studies, I wonder why. Gee, it's because they already know. When I, um, you know, the study that Dave Feldman released, the preliminary results was it about two or three weeks ago, right? Um, comparing uh, lean mass hyperresponders to the Miami Heart study. Okay. Yep. I'm not going to go into that un unless you choose to, but <clears throat> I did a relatively brief video where I, I talked about that because I want people to understand um, that that is the, the first cannon shot um, to utterly destroy the false establishment narrative about cholesterol that's been in existence for 60 years now. And I was very clear that it, the study has its limitations. It, it no Nobody should believe their cholesterol numbers are irrelevant at this point um, because if people are in glucosis. That's a whole different story, right? Um, but I, I know Dave has st more studies pending 
um, that he intends to do. And this is this made sense as the first one. Okay. Uh, but the, the, the you brought this up. We live in a country where, I mean, how much money do you think has been spent on cholesterol research by the establishment in the last 50 years? W- would it be fair to say billions, tens of billions? Billions, trillions with a T? Who knows? Okay. okay. Um, and yet, to do the kind of research that you would want, and that I would want, and Dave Feldman is actively pursuing, in, a, in, one, in the wealthiest country in the world, that research has to be crowdfunded because the establishment won't fund it because they already know what the results will be. And it will, you were talking about this a little bit ago with the grocery stores and the square footage and the um, economic upheaval that would occur if everybody learned the truth. Everybody's got their fingers in the financial, I'm sorry, all the big players that could fund the kind of research that Dave is doing all have their financial fingers in the pie. Okay, So none of them are willing to do the research. Um, you take a look at big pharma. I'm just, I, I'm going to, this is a hypothetical number, but I'm going to guess if all 334 million Americans switch to carnivore um, today, by this day next year, big pharma's profits would probably be down 80%. Oh, yeah. Big meds profits would probably be down more than that. Okay. Um, instead of whining about the cost of an office visit, which I understand it's high right now because doctors are in high demand because everybody's sick, right? But if if you <clears throat> if all 334 million Americans were to adopt carnivore in a year from now, you could probably do an office visit with your doctor for 30 bucks. Because the doctor yeah. would be like, I need to accept 30 bucks or I need to go find another job. There's not enough patients anymore. That's Supply right. Supply and demand. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, kudos to you for getting the word out. Dave Feldman for doing what he's doing. It's, it's, we're, we're making progress. I just, I'm frustrated that it's, it's like molasses in, in winter, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. Like sitting in low carb Denver last year when Dave Feldman is revealing some of that preliminary data on, on the, the study and the room is like dead silent. You can hear a pin drop. Every, everybody gasps when they see the numbers that could finally like show that there's no real causal connection between LDL cholesterol and heart attacks. And the room is so lit up and energized. You go back out in the real world and you're like, oh yeah, it's it's all kind of the same. That we got this this conference room is really excited about this, but none of these other people are gonna understand this information. So it, it's rough. And kudos give kudos to me, kudos to you for writing the book. One thing you do so well is explain the difference between ketosis and glucose. We deep dive into this in our last episode, but I think it's fair to go to, since you've already talked about the diet, you've talked about meat and carnivore, you've talked about grains, seeds, and sugars. Can you talk about the two hemispheres, as you call them, of how humans use energy? Sure. Uh, so, Kate, what, what Casey's re- referring to when he says two hemispheres is there's only two ways that the human body can fuel its cells. Uh, one way is through glucose, and that's where the cells actually, they burn glucose, they go through the ATP cycle, um, and that's what produces cellular energy. And uh, it is presumed in modern times uh, without, one has to completely dismiss nutritional anthropology to make this statement, but in our modern scientific times, um, Burning glucose is considered 
the way you fuel cells. It's the only way. It's always been the only way. And that's a completely idiotic statement. But but that's 99.9% of the world believes that. Um, and I'm not going to get into what that actually is. Well, maybe in a bit we'll get to there. Um, but when Casey said there's two hemispheres, it's because there's only two different ways to fuel. There's no third. And the alternative to fueling cells with glucose is to fuel the cells with predominantly fatty acids and to a lesser extent ketones. And that is, is what every, everybody's sort of the keto diet and everybody's sort of carnivore. But I'm not sure that everybody understands that the only purpose for eating that way, really, I mean, because who doesn't love the taste of a donut? Okay. <laughs> the, the only That's reason when the people eat keto style or carnivore style is to get into this thing called ketosis. That's where the magic happens. We eat keto style or carnivore style to get there and stay there. The magic isn't carnivore per se. The magic isn't keto per se. The magic is the physiological state of ketosis where all hundred trillion cells of our body <clears throat> are rejecting glucose as an energy source and are now burning primarily fatty acids into a lesser extent ketones. Now, when I started um, putting together all the information I wanted to share with people in body science, I was surprised to find that the hemisphere where your body, your cells burn glucose for energy did not have a name. You know, it was that old uh, adage, the last thing a fish would notice is water. Okay, well, yeah. the, the, the world was was so entrenched in this thing that, that cells burn glucose. That's what they do. They've always done. They always will do. It's the way. People were so ingrained in that um, that it didn't even have a name. It was just, that's normal. You have normal and ketosis, and I, which is totally absurd. So I actually had to find a name, and I thought the appropriate way to characterize if, if burning ketones is ketosis, then burning glucose should probably be glucosis. And so I, I gave it that name in order that people could, because if you don't, if you can't call something by its name, it becomes difficult to have a discussion about it. So ketosis was coined in 1921. So that's, that, yeah, that, that's right. that word's been around ages, right? More than a hundred years. Um, <clears throat> but it was so odd to me that this other hemisphere, of which there's only two, didn't have a name. <laughs> that's just crazy. And again, the more cynical side of me wonders if there aren't reasons for that, such as, I know we're going to get into it a little bit, the hepatic lipid system and the lipidless lipid system. They had no names. How do you talk about them without a name? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the point I think I want to make when we're talking about glucosis versus ketosis, <clears throat> anthropologically speaking, um, hominids for millions of years existed from birth to death in ketosis glucosis was unknown to ancient man. Okay? And that only began to change, not even really with the first agricultural revolution, because that still wasn't very wide scale. Okay? 
it, that only really started to change with the second agricultural revolution when um, things like grains became plentiful for the masses. And you probably know from reading history, it, you go back, say, into the Dark Ages just to put a pin on the timeline. Um, meat was the food of royalty and grain was the food of, the, of, of peasants. Yeah. And it's still is today. Um, the problem is now, over the last, I don't know, several, several decades, um, the government has convinced the American people that eating grains and sugar, that's the sign of a successful economy and you've made it in life. If you can have pasta all the time, you know, just absolute nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. So that's super well explained. Glucosis and ketosis. You've already said that the state of ketosis, we would be in that state pretty much our entire lives. If we ever exited that state into a state of glucosis, it would have been exceedingly rare. You would have to find a high amount of a carbohydrate rich food, which doesn't just like pop up everywhere. Like even if you get some fruit, fruit has changed. It's very different. The grains yeah. we use are very different than what you would have found in the past. You think about things like nuts and seeds. They were all protected. You couldn't eat whole bags of, of shelled almonds that you can get at the store now. It's just a completely different landscape that people don't understand. And so let's do talk a little bit about the lymphatic lipid system and the hepatic lipid system and how those two things are different. Which one is the normal, natural state of delivering energy to the body and which one is the emergency state? Okay. Um, let's start with the lipid system. Um, and, and the reason for that is in ketosis, that's a huge part of the healthy functioning of the body. And so what happens when we eat dietary fat, dietary fat does not digest. Okay? Um, it emulsifies. And so it gets into our bowels and it gets emulsified, but it can't transit the intestinal wall and go into our body. Okay. Uh, it, it has to be packaged, unlike carbohydrates or protein, it has to be packaged in these things called colomicrons. Only when it's packaged in these colomicrons, which are incredibly similar to LDL as far as their structure. Okay, They, they are, uh, the analogy I use, they're a delivery truck. I use the analogy in body science, a delivery truck that delivers its content throughout the body. Okay. And the primary difference between LDL and cholemicrons is cholemicrons um, used for structure APO, uh, APOB48, and the LDL uses APOB100. That's pretty much the only difference as far as structure is concerned. So the emulsified fat goes into these cholemicrons. They can then transit the intestinal wall. And here's the, the difference. This is why I call it the lymphatic lipid system. Uh, those fats contained within those colimicrons, they go through the, they, they're carried by the lymph fluid through the lymphatic system. They come up, they curve here, and then they come down and they're dumped into, through the thoracic duct, they're dumped into our bloodstream. And then <clears throat> they go all through our body. And again, the delivery truck perspective, right? They have to offload these fatty acids, which fatty acids, triglycerides, same name, same, two different names for the same substance, right? 
So they're carrying these fatty acids or triglycerides. And here's one of the things that I think is so cool about the body. The microns come along and, and, and here's an HDL particle. And here's a micron particle. And as they cross, the HDL particle gives its APOC2 to the micron, okay, which was what they call a naive micron. And once it receives that APOC2, it unlocks the cargo doors. Until then, it cannot dislodge its triglycerides. It cannot offload them to the cells. So it meets an HDL. It transfers the APOC2. Then the micron goes throughout the body, hooking up with cells. You know, oh, there's your loading dock. Hook up. Here's some triglycerides. Move on. Here's some triglycerides. Um, and then at the end, after the triglycerides are gone, another it passes another HDL, and it gives the APOC2 back to the HDL. It locks the doors, the cargo doors, and only when those cargo doors are locked, it doesn't possess the APOC2, can it go back to the liver and be, um, I don't know what term I want to use, broken down and synthesized into something else. Okay. Um, so that, I think, is, is a pretty fascinating tale. And People who are eating carnivore, as an example, uh, they're getting probably 99% of their calories from proteins and fats. So if we just, for the sake of this illustration, we say 50-50, 50% fat, 50% protein, then 50% of their total intake, nutritional intake gets in, energizes the cells by the process we just talked about. Wow. The it's so elegant. System. Yep. It is. It, it's just amazing. Yeah, you list the pros and cons of how each one of these systems work. And this one, it just this delivers energy. It's in a clean way. Everything gets recycled afterwards. Your cells are happy. They burn fat for fuel. It's just, it, it makes so much sense. So this is the preferred way. Now, yes. let's talk about the hepatic lipid system and how that differs from this system when we eat things like the grains and sugars that you mentioned earlier. Okay, so... For the, your audience who may not know, hepatic just means bearing upon or dealing with the liver. So you could call it the the liver lipid the liver lipid system if you wanted, but but I think more properly the hepatic lipid system. So the interesting thing is that both of these send triglycerides out in 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 a structure in, in a lipoprotein. Okay, um, when it's the lymphatic lipid system, it's the chylomicron. When it's the hepatic lipid system. It, it starts out as VLDLs, then goes to IDLs, and then goes to LDL, okay, um, which I said are very, very similar in their structure. They are all cargo vessels distributing various things, cholesterol, vitamin, uh, water, uh, fat-soluble vitamins, and so forth, okay. So, but here's what happens. We eat things that are, that are carbohydrates, we don't need to qualify what kind of carbohydrates. By the way, for your audience who may not know, every single carbohydrate, whether it's a piece of pasta, whether it's, it's um, grain, a piece of bread, or whether it's some broccoli, 100% of anything that is a carbohydrate breaks down to something called a monosaccharide, which is the basic level of sugar. When it can't be glycated any further, it becomes it's a monosaccharide. Um, only monosaccharides can transit the intestinal wall. So no matter what a person eats, like, oh, I'm going to eat this piece of bread, or I'm going to eat this baked potato, or I'm going to have this piece of candy, <laughs> whatever they stick in their mouth, it's a carbohydrate. Yeah. It goes down into the intestines, and the 
the part that transits the intestinal wall is sugar. It's a monosaccharide. Okay. So, and here's an interesting thing. When it's in the intestines, it's a monosaccharide. The minute it transits the intestinal wall, now science calls it glucose, blood glucose. Okay. So same thing. Okay. So here's an interesting thing. We talked about the fact that the cholemicrons flow into the lymphatic system. Well, the, um, the monosaccharides don't do that. Um, they go through the portal vein directly from the intestines right into the liver. Okay. And it's obviously, I think all of your listeners would know if you eat a high carbohydrate meal, it's going to raise your blood glucose level. Okay. I'm sure you've covered that a million times in talking on various aspects of physiology. <clears throat> so I don't know what if your audience understands that high levels of blood glucose in and of itself is toxic. Okay? And then the body's response in order to ratchet the glucose back down to something akin to baseline is for the pancreas to pump out insulin. Okay? Uh, insulin is toxic. Okay. Now, in a glucosis world, what I just said, if, if we were talking to some like college professor who accepts the nonsense society-wide narrative, they would say, oh, saying high glucose and high insulin are, are toxic is nonsense. But the studies show they are. Okay? But when you believe that glucosis is the only way to exist, kind of hard to knock it, right? Um, it's, part of your, it's part of your whole paradigm. So how can it be wrong? So- what happens is when the insulin goes up, okay? Now, I think most people understand that when insulin increases, blood glucose goes down. That's the purpose of insulin in, in regard to blood sugar, okay? Insulin goes up, the blood sugar comes down. I think that's as far as people understand. If you ask them, how does the blood sugar go down? They don't, under, they don't know the mechanism. Well, the mechanism is the insulin signals the liver to gather up this glucose as the blood is flowing through the, the, the liver, which is a blood organ. And then the liver extracts the excess glucose, again, trying to bring, trying to force that down back to baseline. Okay? And it converts the glucose to triglycerides. Okay? Now, remember over on the lymphatic lipid system, triglycerides are good, right? We want them. But this isn't the same kind of thing. Okay. This is a conversion as an emergency mechanism to get the toxic glucose out of the blood. Okay. So then it packages up this, these synthesized triglycerides. They're not natural. They are synthesized. I guess they're natural in the sense that the liver does it, but the liver doesn't want to do it. The liver has to do it. Okay. Packages them up in VLDLs and spits them out into the bloodstream. Now, the cells already have triglycerides from what the lymphatic lipid system does, right? Lymphatic, this is not an either or. The lymphatic lipid system is always operating, okay? So the triglycerides are already in the cells, okay? And then along comes these VLDLs or IDLs that have this synthesized triglycerides. And they say, hey man, Open up, we got some triglycerides. And the cells are like, dude, we are triglyceride out. <laughs> we can't make any, 
first you bombed us with glucose, so we had to take some glucose in and oxidize, burn that shit off, right? Now you're coming back with these synthesized triglycerides, trying to shove triglycerides into us. We're, we're packed. We can't take any. Okay. Now, here's the thing. These lipid proteins, they get smaller as they offload their cargo. Okay? Some of them are carrying things, they, some carry cholesterols and, and other things. So as they get smaller and smaller and smaller. But what's still in there is the triglycerides because the cells don't want any. Okay? Now, or the cells are full is maybe, maybe a better way to put that. And so the LDL cannot return to the liver until those triglycerides are offloaded. Okay? So what it does, is it's got to put the triglycerides somewhere that puts it into the adipose tissue. This is uh, most commonly understood to be like the belly fat and, you know, the love handles. There are, there's more adipose fatty cells in the body. But the ones most people understand when they hear adipose tissue, when you see the guy at the grocery store with the gut that's hanging out over his belt, that's adipose tissue. Okay. And by the time we are, uh, estimates vary, but we'll say approaching puberty, our body has created all the fat cells it's ever going to have. Okay? It doesn't create more fat cells. So what happens is these LDLs come along and say, we have to offload these triglycerides or, or we can't go back to the liver and, and, and be uh, uptaken into the liver and, and broken down. We have to do something. Well, the body's emergency mechanism is here. Shove it into the adipose cells. Okay. And that's exactly what happens. Now, the thing is, in the Western diet, right, all day long, high glucose, high insulin, high glucose, high insulin, high glucose, high insulin, right? Insulin tells the adipose tissue, do not release triglycerides. So you've got the LDLs offloading their triglycerides into the adipose cells, and then the constant repetition of high insulin is telling them, lock that shit up. Do not release it. Okay? So what happens after 20 years? Obesity, right? Uh, so... That's and the the problem is we talk about you know LDL in the bloodstream you know that that's a big thing with doctors right they 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 call it the cholesterol but it's not really the cholesterol right uh, how much cholesterol is in your blood is is a equation by which they estimate and that's based on how many LDL are still floating around your blood right and the reason there's so many LDLs floating around the blood is two reasons first of all. All those VLDLs that were spit out with converted triglycerides don't belong there in the human body. Okay, so they're, it's flooded with things that don't belong there in the first place. And secondly, by the time they decrease in density to the point where they're the small LDL particles, they still need to go through these extra steps to find adipose cells and force the triglycerides out of themselves before they can return to the liver and be uptaken. Okay, so what? It, when somebody says, "Oh, you have high LDL," yeah. That's because they just keep floating around trying to find a way to get back to the liver to be uptaken and, and broken down and uh, synthesized and other things or excreted as waste. Um, I don't know if I explained that clearly. I know I rambled a bit. Yes. No, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So one, the uh, lymphatic lipid system is completely healthy. That, that's, that's the way man has existed for millions of years. 
the hepatic lipid system what has always been an emergency glucose clearance system. It's meant to be, you say, ancient man, say 50,000 years ago, perhaps the hepatic lipid system would kick in a couple times a year for a couple hours at a time. Modern Americans rely on that emergency clearance method, the hepatic lipid system, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and eventually they wear the body's capacity out to cope effectively. And voila, you have type 2 diabetes, you have heart disease, you have hypertension, you, you just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so that part really stuck out to me this time reading the book. Like, yes, this is an emergency system. I don't give it enough credit for how well it works in that situation. You, you, you describe everything when it happens once. You're like, holy smokes, that's, that's not great. I don't want that to happen ever. But then to think that it is working for so many people for so long, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, yes. they can still stay alive. It's, it's so amazing how even that emergency system is working so hard to keep somebody alive and doesn't break down so, so much faster than that. It blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you know that, that there's this thing. We've seen it all over the media over the last, I don't know, handful of years. This and such disease is hitting people at younger ages, and scientists don't know why. I'm, I'm so sick of this. Scientists don't know why, because it's all bullshit. They do know why. Um, but it goes back to this thing. It would disrupt the revenue, so they don't tell you why. Um, what's really happening is younger generations are eating progressively more and more carbohydrates and more and more processed foods um, and more and more high glycemic carbs, carbs with higher glycemic loads. Okay? And they're doing it at an earlier age. Okay? I mean, when I was eight, I ate what my parents fed me, right? Kids that are eight today, they got their own money. They got their own phone. You know, they want to go to the store and buy a pack of, I don't know, uh, candy or donuts or whatever and woof it down. It's a different world. And so what's happening is this, the cycle that eventually leads to breakdown and disease, that cycle is beginning earlier. And, you know, one of the things that they found in Africa, they being various researchers, that when the Brits came into certain parts of Africa and certain tribes were more urban by those standards, we're talking about 150, 200 years ago, were more urban and then there was the far rural. Okay? The tribes that adopted Western eating style, which those days would have been called British eating styles, okay? the more urban population that adopted that eating style it was about 20 to 25 years before they started manifesting chronic disease. So it's in, in the tribes that were rural and, and didn't partake in the British style of eating, they didn't develop chronic diseases. Okay. So it was all about the diet, but there's the point being, there seems to be a back end limit on how long the body can keep it up. And it appears to be about 20 or 25 years. So somebody like me, I probably didn't start eating the way I wanted to 
until maybe I got home from the military and, you know, was making some good money and going out and partying and eating whatever shit I wanted because it made me feel good at the time. Right. Um, so my clock started ticking about then. Okay. But if, if I'm right, that kids today are more autonomous from their parents than kids of my generation. Okay. If I'm right about that, then their clock is, is starting maybe 15 years earlier than mine. That would mean they're hitting that 20 or 25 year back end limit sooner. And hence they're winding up with these diseases. And then science is saying, well, we don't know why. We don't know. We have no idea. Weird. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned, yes, you mentioned like, Googling. You, you and I spoke, you and I spoke briefly the other day. Um, but this goes back to, we don't know why. Right. And uh, your comment was the increase in type one diabetes. Right. Um, which is not driven by diet. It's driven by genetics. Right. At least partially. Um, and again, those headlines say. And science doesn't know why. And that's a lie, too. They know exactly why type one diabetes is increasing. And that has nothing to do with what you're eating. It's 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 we talked about this ever so briefly. Um Prior to 1921, when synthetic insulin was made, a person who was type 1 diabetic died, period. Yep. No question. 100% of the people with type 1 diabetes died, at least that we know of in Western society. Yep. There's no reason to believe anybody survived with type 1 diabetes. Um, so what happened was, whatever those, whatever causes the genetic predisposition to type 1 diabetes... Unless the person had, ha had later onset of type 1, so they were able to have some kids first, short of that, and most of type 1 onsets when you're a child, prepubescent. Okay? So what was happening was people who had whatever the genetic predisposition is to type 1, they'd manifest the type 1, they'd die. So, so that genetic lineage didn't carry on through society, okay? So, okay, here's a genetic problem. Well, you're gone. Genetic problem, you're gone. It, it, that lineage didn't grow. Okay? So as of 1921 with the synthetic insulin, humans with type 1 diabetes started living full lives. And all of them that wanted to get married and have kids did. And still are, right? And in some many cases, they're passing that genetic predisposition onto their children. So, of course, if we look at any population, we start mating. You know, you see the pyramid. You know, here, here's the patient X, so to speak. And then, you know, here we go, right? So it, it's very clear because they used to die. So the lineage stopped. Now they live the lineage grows exponentially as far as how many human beings have those genetic predispositions. It's not a mystery, but yeah. you will literally see headlines. I'm motioning to my computer like, like you can see it. Uh, you literally see headlines um, that say, and science doesn't understand why. They don't understand why people have diabetes. They don't understand why people are getting, you know, various chronic diseases in an earlier age. They don't understand why Alzheimer's striking people at an earlier age. And on and on. They don't understand. And that's, all bullshit. Yeah.
Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I just started listening to Gary Taub's new book, Rethinking Diabetes. He deep dives into a lot of this. I told you offline, I, I, I the numbers to me were staggering. There were way more than I thought that since 2001, cases of type one diabetes um, have risen by 50%. That's a huge number in my opinion. And, and what you're explaining explains that perfectly, right? Like, like, we're, we're allowing this lineage to continue. And so more and more people are going to get it. And it was interesting going back to those times as he's describing, like they knew that diet was a component and they were trying to get people to eat, eat, eat more protein and more fat. But then when we developed um, insulin, all of a sudden people wanted the insulin and they wanted that treatments and doctors didn't have to, you know, mess with the kerfuffle of trying to change people's diets. It was just so much easier to give them the insulin and let them eat whatever they wanted. And so we kind of lost that knowledge and that in information. And you, you, you wrote an entire chapter on type one diabetes, which is fascinating. It's towards the very end. You, you, is it a bonus chapter? Is, is that it how is. we should it's, say it? It is. I didn't even, because it's a hypothesis, I didn't even number it as a chapter because I wanted all the numbered chapters to be factual. Okay. And the insulin intolerance hypothesis isn't fact. Okay, it, it's my hypothesis. Do you want me to explain to the audience what it is? Yes, absolutely. And and you gave a great analogy of being in a room with a killer that I thought explained it really well. So maybe we could tie that in as well. Sure. Okay. So the basic premise of the insulin intolerance hypothesis is that it it what brings on type one. And by the way, that that's what the insulin intolerance hypothesis deals with is how to avoid the onset of type 1 diabetes, right? Because it's considered that we don't know how to stop the onset. If you have the predisposition, um, then you're probably going to get type 1. Okay. So the question is, is there a way to stop that? And so my insulin intolerance hypothesis speaks to that. And basically it says this, we all know what an autoimmune disease is, yes? So the, the body sees something as harmful and it overreacts to simplify the process. And that overreaction by the body causes detrimental impacts on, on the person's physiology and they have some sort of illness or disease or unwellness, okay? So that's autoimmune. So the, many people have, have speculated that type one diabetes is an autoimmune response. But no one's addressed what exactly it is or talked about, well, you know, okay, so we're calling it autoimmune. What is that pathway? What's the mechanism? Okay, so my belief is this. Our bodies know instinctively. I've ta I talk about the body's native intelligence absent what's up here, okay? In body science, I talk about that a little bit. Uh, High insulin is bad. High glucose is bad. Okay. Now, because the body knows that high glucose and high insulin are toxic, imagine if there is a particular person whose genetics um, and, and the way what triggers their genetic expression, okay, is that high insulin isn't just seen as an oh shit, okay? High insulin is seen as, oh my God, you're killing me. Okay. Far more dramatic response than, than the other 99% of the people on the planet, right? Okay. That one person, their body freaks out and the auto, they have an autoimmune response, an autoimmune disease response. 
So what their body does is so hypersensitive, so hypersensitive to high insulin, it's so fearful of the high insulin that it goes and it attacks the cells in the pancreas that create insulin. That's its way of surviving. It perceives high insulin as such a threat that it says, we know how to stop this. And it goes after the cells in the pancreas to produce the insulin and kill them. Okay. The person ends up, they can't produce any more insulin or very, very limited supply of insulin. And prior to 1921, they die because blood glucose just continues to rise and there's mo no mechanism left in place to, to bring it down. Okay. Uh, so the question is, if there is this crazy over-the-top autoimmune response that kills the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas, um, and that is a disease of its own, is there a way, you've probably heard of epigenetics, the word, okay? I, I, I dislike using that word because people have read so much into it that, that doesn't belong within the confines of epigenetics. But um, for the limited purpose of this discussion, it, epigenetics would mean how we're triggering our genes to express various things that then have a cascade that lead to an, an outcome, okay? So if the body panics over insulin, how would we perhaps stop the body from ever having that panic attack, okay? And we're not talking about this kind of panic attack, <laughs> um, a physiological panic attack. How do we stop the body from doing that? Well, one suggestion might be we don't allow it to increase insulin from baseline, okay? Now, insulin doesn't just bring blood glucose down. It does a couple of other things, so we can't eradicate insulin from the body, um, but we can keep it at baseline, which in type 1s, I've seen no evidence that insulin at baseline causes any adverse response, okay? It's the it's the increase in insulin that seems to trigger the onset of type 1, the repetitive uh, increase in insulin. So my, my concept was this. In, in the analogy to which you're referring, I said, imagine you're locked in a room with a, a, a psychotic killer, and this, this psychotic killer is covered in knives, in sheaths, okay? And, and you've got nothing, okay? He's got like 50 knives on his person and you got nothing. And he's a known psychotic killer. Okay? But you find out he's only triggered into becoming a psychotic killer when he hears loud music, which is analogous to high insulin, right? So there's a stereo in the room. And so what's that expression? Fuck around and find out, right? Okay, so you go over and you, <laughs> you turn the music on. And our psychotic killer is in the corner like this, doesn't react. Okay. Huh. Turn up the volume on the music a little bit more. Doesn't react. Turn up the music a little bit more. And the psychotic killer goes. <laughs> Okay, I got my eye on you, right? So if you keep screwing around with the volume knob, increasing the volume, at some point, you're going to trigger the psychosis. He's going to come out with these knives and he's going to kill you. And by the time you reach that moment, you can't undo that. You can't turn the volume back down and it's all good. Okay. 
So that is analogous to the high insulin, okay? By the time you keep doing this again and again and again with the insulin and the psychotic killer, which is the autoimmune response killing off the beta cells in the pancreas to produce the insulin, by the time that happens, you can't reverse it. You can't turn the volume down. You can't make it go away. You've screwed yourself. You're done because you kept turning the damn music up, which is analogous to high insulin. For these people who genetically, their bodies panic at high insulin. That's the hypothesis. Now, uh, when we were offline chatting a bit ago, um, I mentioned that presuming I am correct, the insulin intolerance hypothesis is factual, I will never live to see it because type 1 diabetes almost always onsets at, at an earlier age. Most of it's in childhood. It used to be called childhood diabetes before it was called type 1. Yeah. Um, right. It's very rare for the onset to occur after 35 or 40. Yeah. Very rare. It's kind of like if you got there, it's like, whoo, I'm genetically predisposed, but it didn't happen. Okay. So for this to happen, we need to select a lot first of all, families that had a predisposition to type one genetically. And then they would have to agree to keep their children in ketosis <clears throat> forever, forever being measured, of course, by the time the child develops a will and a mind of its own. And then it would have to take over that responsibility for remaining in ketosis. Okay. So I don't know. I'm going to throw out some arbitrary numbers. If, if that study kicked off with 10,000 participants, you know, by the time they all reach 35 or 40, you'd probably be left with several hundred that actually towed the line and stayed in ketosis every single day for all those years. But here's the thing. That's that ever shrinking cohort <laughs> at, at the 35 or 40 year mark, <clears throat> if none of those those who had stuck to in ketosis their whole life, if none of them had developed type one, I think that would be a very strong indicator that the insulin intolerance hypothesis is factual and that type one does not have to occur in anyone ever. Now, I'm not going to say 100% of the people who are predisposed predisposed could avoid it via ketosis. I'm not going to say 100%, but if you could reduce those that, that the on, you could reduce the onset in 99% of the people with a predisposition, you could make sure they didn't onset. How wonderful would that be? Yeah. Now, what are the odds that research is ever going to happen? Well, zero. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Of course. Yeah. Um, and of course, Big Pharma makes billions of year off of insulin. <clears throat> so why would they, you know, sort of being crowdfunded? Uh, and of course, a study with that sort of longevity, uh, 35, 40 years would be insanely expensive. Um, and, and only the big players could fund something like that and keep track. And they have their fingers in the financial pie. They're the ones making billions. So it's never going to happen. But I would encourage people um, if, if you, if somebody has type one diabetes, they know their, their, their parents did or their grandparents, they've got type one, they know it's a genetic lineage in their family and they're going to have kids. <clears throat> um, 
you may be saving your child from type one by keeping that child in ketosis as long as the child is willing to stay in ketosis. Now, I know right. some, par some parents are going to be, so what? We have insulin. Why, why would I care? What do you do about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be tough, but that was such a great explanation. And we know what low carbohydrates do to people that have type one and type two diabetes. They typically do not have the same kind of symptoms. It's the, what do they call it? The, the, the law of, of small numbers, the, the, the law of small averages or whatever, where if you're keeping your blood sugar low, any insulin that you may need will be far, far less anyway. Yes. And so you can manage it so much better. We know that with people with type one and type two diabetes. And so I love the hypothesis. It's probably going to have to remain a hypothesis for those reasons that you listed. And I want to, I want to come back around to that one last time, the chapter that you wrote called a brave new world that talks about the numbers and the money and, and, all of the implications from everything that we've talked about today, everything you've written about in body science. One more time, what are what happens if if all of a sudden like this, a bunch of people got your book, a bunch of people read your book, they decided to do whatever they like with their diet, which meant whatever for them to stay in ketosis is something they chose. What would happen economically? Okay, so first of all, for the to make this illustration crystal clear, I don't want it to be muddy or murky in any way. We're going to say 100% of the people in the United States switched into ketosis, okay? Um, because th then we don't have to argue about percentages and whatnot. Okay, so if everybody switched into ketosis, um, the first of all, first consequence, the processed food industry would cease to exist. Okay. Um, I don't know how many trillions of dollars the processed food industry makes in the United States. I don't know how many people are employed by the processed food industry. And of course, we know how economics work. It's it's not just the it's not just the factories that are spitting out the food. It's it's all the companies from which they source materials and the employees of the the just the economic devastation. Um, and, and I I don't mean devastation in a negative sense in this story we're telling, okay, um, <clears throat> would be dramatic, okay? Um, because literally all these processed food companies would be out of business within, as long as, as long as their bank accounts could hold out, maybe the year, two years, three years, and they're done, okay? Because virtually nobody would be buying their food, okay? Um, grocery stores, you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, grocery stores, we talked about the fact that probably 90 percent, 90 plus percent of what they're selling is some form of processed food versus something that's that's a whole food. Okay. So now if people stopped eating processed food, they still need to get calories. So if somebody was consuming 2,500 calories a day of process, highly processed food, or they still need 2,500 calories a day to survive or someplace in that range, they just have to find another food source, which would be things like meat. Okay. So but of course, meat is much more calorically dense than the stuff that's, that's coming out of the processed food industry, right? And it's a lot more dramatically more calorically dense than, than things like vegetables. Okay. So, but what happened would be you, you the, the grocery stores, and this would be an adaptation process, and there would be a lot of pain before the adaptation paid off. Okay. But grocery stores could probably shrink their square footage by about 80%, okay, 70, 80%. And that remaining 20 or 
would now be meat, meat byproducts, right? There'd be no vegetable oil. Yeah, none of that. There'd be no cereals. There'd be no breads. There'd be nothing, right? Um, I mean, there'd be no barbecue sauce because, I mean, as crazy as that sounds, you know this, like 99.9% .9 of barbecue sauces are just loaded up with sugar. Try and find a sugar-free barbecue sauce, right? It almost doesn't exist, right? So all these foods would just go away <clears throat> and all that there would be there, there would be an incredibly large meats, incredibly large by today's standards, incredibly large meat section and a little tiny vegetable section. So, you know, a, a grocery store that you walk in, you can't, you, today you can't even see the other side. It's so, so vast. Now you'd walk in, there's the back wall right there because it could all be shrunk down, right? Um, we talked about the impact on medical community, um, big pharma. Um, it, let's talk about fast food, okay? Fast food is so much of it is highly processed food products. I didn't call it food, food products. Okay. Um, if, if everybody in the United States was saying, for the sake of this illustration, I only eat carnival, then fast food would have to find a way that when you stepped in the door, instead of asking for your Big Mac or your Whopper, you'd say, give me that slab of prime rib or whatever the food is, right? And... Uh, at that point, people would actually care about their health. They presumably, in this this example, people would care about their health. So they'd have to get things that were um, not pumped full of all sorts of chemicals by uh, you know big food and so forth. So it, it would be a a sea change, just complete. Um, and yeah, there'd be a lot of pain. Let me be very clear about this. But the net outcome would be America would go from being, within a year, would go from being the sickest society, the sickest population in all of human history, which we are at this point. The United States population is the sickest population that has ever walked the earth. We are sicker than people in every other land across the globe. We are the sickest. In a year, we'd be the healthiest people on the planet. There'd be a lot of economic pain that would go with that. Um, we can work through the economic pain, um, but shifting from the sickest people on the planet in all of human history to being the healthiest, that's some good stuff right there, in, at least in my way of seeing the world. It's it's boggling. I mean, think of all that extra square footage in the grocery store. We could just throw some weight equipment in there and people could go grab their beef and do a few deadlifts <laughs> or squats. <laughs> That'd be great. We wouldn't even need separate gyms and, and supermarkets. It could all, all be one place. One one stop shop for sure. There you go. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And and as much as you and I would love to imagine a future where that would happen again, we know the powers that be, and and the way that this message is going to continue to be suppressed. But if you're listening to this. You're the starfish that people talk about in that story where the guy's walking down the beach and throwing starfishes back in the ocean. And the other person comes up and says like, Hey, you're never going to save all these starfishes. He's like, well, I saved this one. He throws it in the ocean. Like you can be that person. You and your family can change the way you eat. You can change the way you think about food. Body science is a great way to 
learn about some of this stuff. And if you take the implications, because you don't tell people what to do, by the way, you don't tell people that they have to be in ketosis and eat X, Y, and Z to be able to do it. It's just, this is the information. Now you decide what you're going to do. If you're the listener thinking that this is possible, you're right. Like you can go and do this. I'm telling you, like, I'm assuming it's the same for you, but since I've been on this way of eating, I have not gone to one medical doctor. I've not needed one prescription. Uh, My food costs a a very low amount. I spend a few bucks a day on all the food that I need eating mostly carnivore. It's amazing. And your energy is good and your brain works better. And everybody in this community seems to be reverse aging magically. Like you are younger every time I see you. Is, all of that is possible when you get the information that is in your book. And I'm, again, I'm assuming that is the case for you. What, what, what are your medical bills? Like how many prescriptions are you on at age 65, like 64, excuse me. Um, do you have the same experience that I've had? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen what, well, not only have I not seen a doctor since I switched into ketosis um, because I haven't had to, not only do I not take any prescription drugs, um, but I haven't been sick a day since I shifted into ketosis. Now, that includes going through the whole SARS-CoV-2 event. Right? Um, you know, I, I, I hope people won't take what I'm about to say the wrong way, because I, I, have, I have empathy for people who had a hard time with COVID-19, I have sympathy for the families of those who passed away. So please don't take this the wrong way. For me, SARS-CoV-2, I I call it the SARS-CoV-2 event because by the original definition of pandemic, it wasn't even a pandemic, okay? Um, By the the SARS-CoV-2 event was a non-event for me. It, it was like, <clears throat> the hell are all you people doing? <laughs> I, I, it was funny because in about the first quarter of 2021, I went out and I had a blood test that was, I paid for out of pocket, not none of that government crap, right? Because I don't want to be part of creating data for them on something that was run amok, right? So out of pocket for a test for... SARS-CoV-2 specific T-cell response, okay? And the the particular kind of T-cell that they were testing for, lifespan is roughly eight months, okay? Sometimes it can be a little longer. Um, And I came up positive. So at some point during 2020, the SARS-CoV-2 virus got inside me and engendered um, an antigenic response, but I was never sick a day in my life, right? You now we go to the news and we see, you know, it's an RSV and you get the flu and you, you know, COVID's back and everybody's freaking out and hospitals are putting mask mandates back in place. And again, I don't care what it is, add all those together, you know, one big, this is fall, this is fall, this is winter, right? Okay. And again, I'm sitting over here. Well, none of that has anything to do with me because I've been living in ketosis for years. I don't ever get, I literally have not got, you know, like you, oh, I'm sick. I have to go to bed. I can't work. Not once 
since I switched into ketosis. But I do know when my body's fighting something, and I don't know if you have the same experience, Casey. If my body's fighting something, the worst of it is I feel a little off. Yeah. And one of the telltale signs for me, I don't know if this applies to others, I notice I react a little bit more emotionally to things. Things that I would go, eh. <laughs> Suddenly I'm like, I don't like that. <laughs> um, and, and I catch myself and I go, oh, I'm fighting something off. And, you know, a day or two later, I'm back to my normal a person, my normal continence. Um, but like, actually, like, I don't feel well. I have to go to bed. I can't work. I can't go to the gym. Has not happened. Not once since I've, since I shifted into ketosis years ago. Same. Uh, and Same. So this is this is part of the thing, Casey, and I know I've expressed frustration on a couple of points as we've been talking today. You know, I, I want to like grab people by the lapels. I'm like, what don't you get? <laughs> uh, now, granted, <laughs> you and I also go to the gym. We do cardio. We do resistance training, um, which for those of your audience who may not be aware of this, that, that's critical for your immune system because a huge part of your immune system uh, involves your lymphatic system. And unlike unlike your cardiac system, where you've got a pump called the heart, okay, um, the, your lymph system does not have a pump. Um, but yet the lymph fluid to be healthy, most especially your immune system to be healthy, that lymph fluid has to circulate. The only way lymph fluid circulates is by the contraction of skeletal muscle. That's it. There's no other way to circulate it. So whether it's doing squats, whether it's doing curls, whether it's doing lat pulldowns, whatever, th that, that action, the contraction release, contraction release, contraction release, moves the lymph fluid, right, which goes through the lymph nodes. It also affects your bone marrow. These things are all critical to your immune system, which I think for speaking for me and, and probably for you, we never get sick because we're in ketosis and we exercise. And I should say, since I've talked about the gym several times, you don't need to go to the gym. And if you don't, if you go to the gym, you don't need to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Go there, do 20 or 25 minutes of cardio a day, move some weights around, um, get that muscle contraction of your skeletal muscles. And, and it'll all fall into place because that's how our bodies are genetically coded. Just do it and you'll have the same response that Casey and I have had in our lives. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. When all this stuff went down in 2020, I was at low carb Denver and all of us were watching the world shut down around us and, and, and saying the exact same thing. Well, this doesn't really, this, this isn't a problem I need to worry about. Like, yeah, we'll be careful or whatever. But everybody in that room knew that they had not gotten sick since they had been eating this way. That was exactly my experience. The day I got COVID, I felt like for 20 minutes, I might want to just kind of like lay down a little bit, but there was a world cup soccer game going on and I kind of wanted to watch that too. So I can't really say whether it was one or the other. That was fine. So, and, and that is so consistent with anybody who eats this way. So I love that you made that point. You made the point in the book also that it's like ketosis is not an upregulation really of your immune system. It's just removing all the stuff that suppresses your immune system that, that, that makes it worse. This is our normal, natural state of being. And yeah. all of the, the diseases and things that we 
now understand very well are related to insulin resistance and running the hepatic lipid system way too much by eating the wrong things, sugar and grains, contributes to all of it. And if you can switch that system and start running your body in the right way, using ketosis and the lymphatic lipid system, everything improves, everything gets better. And that story just keeps repeating over and over and over and over again. It's amazing. It's so cool. You know, one of the, one of the highlights for me about sitting here talking to you about this kind of thing is I spent a lot of time trying to influence people. Okay. And a lot of that's on social media. Um, I have private clients, but a lot of that is on social media. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's a struggle. Um, tr trying to get people to open their minds and hear the kind of things you and I have talked about today is it's a struggle. It's challenging. And so then I come on and I talk to somebody like you it's like, ah, what a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Somebody who whose mind was open from day one, who took the information in, who performed the assessment, the evaluation, who looked at the evidence, adopted it, has lived it out, tremendously successful in a health perspective. Now, it's like just leaving aside the audience, I just love having this conversation with you because it's like somebody who gets it right on. Yeah. That, I don't well, get it. I don't talk to a lot of people who get it. <laughs> it, it. It's tough. We are the minority out there, right? And it was, it was learning about it the same way that you learned about it. Like this, this cannot be true. Like if this, if what I'm learning about the way fat works and cholesterol works, then everybody has been wrong for all this time, and maybe people are making money off of these weird ideas. Like it's just, yeah. I, I, I feel like you very grateful to have stumbled across this information and applied it with my clients in my own life to be able to reap the benefit. I know you feel the same way you and Jen, uh, I love what you guys are doing with adopting cats and you just got a new dog. Um, I love the pictures of that. You're always either posting delicious pictures of your food or pictures of your pets, which I, <laughs> I absolutely love. What, what do you, what's on the horizon for you? What's next for you? Oh, good question. And, and I've been wondering that myself. Um, you know, I love to write, and <clears throat> you apparently think I did an admirable job with body science in terms Absolutely. of communicating, commit, breaking science down into language that it all, everyone can understand. There's, what, 8.1 billion people on the planet, and provided they speak English, they'll understand everything that's in body science. I stayed away as far as possible from the medical mumbo jumbo <clears throat> and represented. Now, Income Tax Shattering the Mist, my first book, um, same thing. Um, it, it takes this incredibly vast and, inten and intentionally made complex, insane making subject, and it breaks it down into something that every single person can understand. So, and in both cases, the common denominator there is knowing what I knew, I couldn't just sit it out silently. Okay. Um, and that that's that was the impetus for income tax shattering the mist. It was the impetus for body science. Knowing what I know, I couldn't just sit it out. Um, if if I didn't, if I didn't, was that old expression? Uh, if not me, then who? 
So knowing what I knew, if I didn't share this with my countrymen, in case of body science, people all over the world, uh, who's going to do that? And I have, a, I have a gift for taking complex subjects and breaking them down to the things that every single person can understand, um, that nobody has to have a higher education, anything like that. that, that we all have our gifts, right? That, that happens to be one of mine, is to be a, the ability to distill and simplify and yet not lose the underlying important science, or in the case of income tax, it's the important law, but break it down in a way everybody can understand. So in answer to your question, having the, done that twice, I'm kind of looking for the next thing. Um, I, I did start a, uh, a novel uh, you know, that, that kind of petered out, I think, because it doesn't didn't have the same drive, the impetus to share critical information as the previous projects. Um, I have toyed with the idea of writing a more like a pamphlet than a book, um, maybe a very skinny book on exercise and from the perspective that just like all the other subjects we've been talking about today, what most people have been programmed with by the media um, about exercise is actually false. Um, there's so much bad information out there. Um, so, you know, it, it would be like a companion piece almost to body science because a lot of it would be, um, a lot of it would revolve around somebody being in ketosis. But um, just the reality of what happens to our body, what happens to the brain when you exercise? I bet if we lined a thousand Americans up and asked them, explain to me the mechanism that occurs, the changes that occur in your brain function um, as you're exercising and in the hours after you've exercised. Go ahead and explain that to me. I don't know. Okay. Um, we talked about blood sugar a lot today. What, what happens in terms of blood sugar? Uh, what happens, uh, we talked about the ATP, so the Krebs cycle, right? Which um, is so funny because that's that's part of the whole glucosis existence, yeah? And I, when I say to people, when you're in ketosis, the Krebs cycle doesn't function in your muscle tissue. Oh, Casey, people get so mad. They're like, it absolutely still does. The Krebs cycle of your ATP is still critical for energy, for cellular energy. I'm like, not in the muscle tissue, not in ketosis. Um, but they get so mad. Um, but the, the point is in, in sharing that they, they don't understand. And especially because you remember back like in the eighties, right? The whole, the exercise was all about trendiness and looking good. And, you know, uh, Suzanne Summer doing that thing with the, and their legs. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <I messed> her. <laughs> So it was just crazy stuff, right? And it just went from there getting crazier. And, and the reason I, I'm considering this is how many Americans would actually adopt some level of exercise? Would I don't even like the word exercise. It's been so bastardized with all these different ideas. Uh, yeah, how many people start moving their body if, if they understood what it does for them really? Not all the crap you see in muscle and fitness, not all the crap you see in, you know, eating well magazine. Yeah, none of that garbage. Um, just what it really does physiologically for the human body. I wonder how many people would say, I didn't get it. 
I thought this was like a fad or a hype or people do this because they, they, uh, they're vain. They want to look good. You know, I didn't realize like ancient man was healthy because like it or not, there was no couch to sit on <laughs> like it or That's not. Right. He had to get off his ass and go out and walk and run and lift and push <laughs> every single day. Was he, was he lifting Arnold Schwarzenegger weights? He was not overwhelmingly right. 99.9999% of the time he was not lifting, you know, 400 pounds, but he was lifting and he was pulling and he was squatting and he was running and he was walking and he was wrestling, so to speak. And, you know, and, you know, I don't know how many original hominids existed on earth. Um, but I think we can agree the number was probably very small originally. Um, and, and we're eight point something billion people now, 8.1, I think the last time I looked. Okay. So, and, and a lot of that, that arc from however many small to billions uh, occurred when man couldn't sit on his ass. He had to get up every right. day. He had to walk. He had to run. He had to push. He had to pull. He had to squat. Um, and there was a reason that men, uh, I use that like mankind, not versus women. There's a reason that mankind was healthy and persevered through all of the hardships, all of the bacteria, all of the diseases, all of the incredibly cold winters, all of the insanely hot summers. And the population just kept growing and growing and growing and growing because he was healthy. He ate meat predominantly, overwhelmingly. He ate meat whenever possible. Uh, there were tribes that could not, but overwhelmingly ate meat and, and moved, had to every day. You see some of these um, researchers and they talk about, they've gone to various tribes around the world and seen what they've eaten. You know, and some of them are like, well, they eat like, you know, 85% carbohydrates. So that throws the uh, carbohydrate argument out the window. You're not sick because of carbohydrates. Okay. So first of all, those tribes, so they exist on the ancient level. Okay. Yes, their diet may be because of their circumstances where they live. Their diet may be 85% carbs, but they're moving from the minute they get on their feet until the minute they, they lay their head down. And their calorie intake may be like 700 or 900, I'm sorry, 800 or 900 calories a day. A thousand calorie day is big calories, right? So pe people who are active, they, they have to be active to survive like those tribes do. And they're, a, a big day of calories is a thousand calories. Yeah, they can survive living in glucosis. Um, it's not the desirable way. And uh, there was a, experiments from uh, genetically similar tribes in Africa where they had tribes that ate predominantly vegetable foods and they had tribes that ate nothing but meat, okay? They, they had some, I forget the slogan, but that tribe, that part of the tribe, because they had had a disagreement at some point and went their separate ways. The tribe that ate primarily meat, they had some expression to some slogan, like vegetables are for women or something like that, right? <laughs> and, and we're going back, you know, more than 100 years ago now, but researchers tested the two tribes, which were genetically similar because they used to be one people, okay? And those that ate nothing but animal flesh, were stronger and faster than their counterparts who had a different diet. So the point being, there's that 
good, better, best scale. And uh, sure, people can survive on 900 calories a day, the 85% which of carbohydrates because of their circumstances. But that's not on the good, better, best scale. That's not best, right? Eating the meat is the best. Eating the meat and moving, that's the pinnacle. That's the apex. That's where you are. Yeah, that's where you are. Yeah. So, well, so you, I, have you gotten the have you gotten the impression I could do this for hours because I love this subject? Yes, and I love this subject too. <laughs> and I really, really, really hope you do write that book, pamphlet, booklet, whatever, because that is a message that needs to get out. People, I, I tell people all the time, like exercise, eating, nutrition, all this stuff. Maybe it's not easy, but it should be simple. All of this stuff could be very, very simple. Moving, lifting, squatting, like you said, it doesn't take much more than that. And I think if more people knew that, they would be, like you said, like more um, apt to try it. You know what I mean? So for me, selfishly, I really do hope that you write this book. And I know that we could go on and on and on and on for hours on this topic. I absolutely love it. I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm glad that you mailed me the book when you did, um, when I did not know who you were. And now we've been able to do a few of these and just, I've learned so much from you and all your research. And I, you know, again, is it going to change the world? Unfortunately, probably not, but we can change a few lives out there. And your book is a big part of that. So as always, thank you so very much for all of your work and your research and everything that you do. Where would you like people to go to find you, connect with you and your work and find the book? Okay. Before I say that, I want to acknowledge you. Um, Yes, I did send you the book. Okay. But you read it and you had an interest in talking about it. I cannot tell you how many authors, influencers, et cetera, uh, not authors, journalists and influencers I've sent a copy of Body Science to. Very few have actually read it and almost none want to talk about it, which I think is part of the reasons we discussed earlier. So I wanted to acknowledge you. Yes, I sent you the book, but it's all about you. You took the bull by the horns and you did what is beneficial for others. You read it, you applied it, you talk about it. Thank you for having me on. Um, Now onto your question. Uh, If people want to get body science or anything else I've written, they can go to drreality.news. That's D-R-reality, all one word, drreality.news. They can follow me on Rumble. That's where I put all my videos these days because YouTube removed me because I was telling the truth and they didn't like that. Um, So uh, if you go to Rumble, simply search for Dave Champion PhD. Uh, For for whatever reason, when you enter Dave Champion without the PhD uh, in Rumble, it doesn't really bring me up for some reason. So make sure you add the PhD. Also, I am on X, formerly Twitter. um, And uh, my username there is Dr. Reality 5, the same DR Reality with the numeral 5 at the end. And you'll find me there. I post my videos on both X natively. And on Rumble. So, and of course, if somebody's on Facebook, you know, they can reach out and, and friend me, but I, I should warn them, you're, you're a friend of mine on, on Facebook. Um, I, I talk about a whole spectrum of things on my personal <laughs> Facebook page that I don't get into on X and Rumble. So somebody may think may think they know what they're getting and not be so happy on the Facebook side of things. Um, so if you just want to stick to the law and you want to stick to physiology, Rumble, and uh, X is probably where you want to be. Awesome. Perfect. We'll link all of that up in the show notes. Dave, this has been a pleasure, and thank you so very much for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing the book. It's a shame that that others 
didn't because they're missing out. And and it's a story that needs to get out to more people. And again, you, you absolutely have a gift of making things really complex, be very well understood for the reader. Um, and, and yeah, you do a great job of that. So thank you so very much again for all of your work. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Casey. Bye. Thank you.